Um, okay, so tonight's topic is contentment. And um, it's actually a big topic that will take more than one evening to explore. Um, but I wanted to give it a start tonight. Um, so, so the Buddha teaches freedom, teaches freedom from suffering. He said, I teach two things, the existence of suffering and the end of suffering. And in my experience as a longtime practitioner and study and observation of other practitioners, a really essential milestone on the journey to freedom, complete freedom, is well-being. And well-being isn't, a, it's impermanent like everything else. It comes and goes. But when well-being becomes more and more a familiar part of the landscape on the journey, that in, is an indication that we're deepening in our capacity to respond to life in such a way that we can be at peace more often. And the two sort of basic um, ways of responding to life that support well-being, according to the Buddhist map, are compassion, finding compassion in, in various ways and forms that it's appropriate to the moment, but specifically compassion for all of the difficult things in life, the, anything from the minor irritations and stresses all the way to the most terrible tragedies, finding a way to um, respond in such a way that we are holding it with perspective and love and clarity. And that can mean um, speaking truth to power and having really fierce boundaries. And it can mean all that. And it can also mean um, holding our own hearts in care and gentleness when we notice ourselves getting activated or, or dysregulated in any way. So there's compassion, really important. And then also really important, and this is where I want to take us tonight and probably in future talks as well, also really important is the, all, the practices of contentment. I'm using the word contentment. It's often the, the word that's often used in, in Buddhist translations is the word joy. And joy is a wonderful synonym. And I'll use some other synonyms tonight as well. Um, and what content, uh, contentment and compassion have in common, both of these energies spring from awareness and loving kindness. So it's almost like mindfulness, awareness, and loving kindness or friendliness are the parent energies of both compassion and contentment. And I'll explain that. Um, mindfulness, as we know, is this energy of turning toward what's happening in the present moment. It's, it's a being with, a turning toward. It's a non-judgmental paying attention. And we need that. We need that capacity. We need to cultivate it. And we do cultivate it in this tradition um, so that we can see clearly what's going on. Because our thoughts are pretty nonstop and they put a veil over our, our reality. And what mindfulness can do is kind of move through that veil just to see what's actually happening. And with that capacity, we can begin to cultivate um, new and more useful responses at times. So mindfulness is that turning toward whatever's happening. 
And then loving kindness is an energy of boundless friendliness. Uh, really um, turning toward what is with kindness, with curiosity and warmth. Um, and that's hard to do when things are hard, but that's what compassion is all about. And I, I love the whole compassion piece. And I spend a lot of my um, study and practice in the compassion world. But tonight we're going to go over to the contentment world because it's also really, really important. So compassion and contentment have these two parent energies of mindfulness and loving kindness. Ram Dass merged them and called them loving awareness. And lately, Jack Cornfield and others are using that term as well, loving awareness, to describe this kind of general container energy from which all these other beautiful qualities arise. Buddha Gosa, who was a, an, a, a really important Buddhist scholar in the fifth century, said the characteristic of loving kindness is to promote well-being. Its function is to prefer well-being. And this, when I first read that, I, I just read it and then kept reading whatever else was being said in the text, you know. <laughs> And now I, I've come to see that this particular statement, the characteristic of loving kindness is to promote well-being. Its function is to prefer well-being is really deep. When you think about friendliness, you know, it's not an energy that we normally lift up out of the crowd and say, oh, wow, friendliness, what a sacred energy. But that's what we're saying here. We're saying that this energy of friendliness, which is a natural, normal human capacity, when we deliberately cultivate it so that it's not only arising sort of, you know, in, in moments where it's really, really easy and, and natural for it to arise, but it's arising in more and more moments, friendliness arising in the neutral moments, friendliness towards the car door as you're pulling it open to drive someplace. No, friendliness arising more and more with more and more beings. Friendliness arising more and more consistently towards ourselves. And the teaching here is that this, the characteristic of loving kindness, of friendliness, is to promote well-being. And I think for me, a really um, helpful way of understanding this more, the Buddha taught wise understanding is really useful in terms of motivating us to pursue these practices. And so getting it, getting it for me, getting a good handle on why is it that we practice friendliness, loving kindness so ardently in Buddhism, right alongside with uh, mindfulness? Why is that? No, and Buddha goes is saying, well, because it promotes well-being. Well, a way of thinking about this that I find helpful, so I want to share with you, is just to think about friends. The root word of metta, which is uh, Pali for loving kindness or, or friendliness, the root word is friend. When you think about friends, being with friends and, and uh, what it's like, to be in the company of a good friend, you can start to begin to sense into that feeling of well-being that can come. And that friendliness is there with the compassion and with the contentment. So friends stay with us during hard times. And I'm sure as I'm talking, you can think of a friend who's been there for you in a hard time or ways in which you've been there for others in hard times. They, that's the compassion aspect of friendliness, that just willingness to, to stay, turn toward and be with in this friendly way. So friends are with us during the hard times, even when they can't fix our pain, they care and they do what they can. And our dear friends enjoy us. Your, your friends like you and they want to share in some of the simple joys of life with you, the contentment end of friendliness. 
So, you know, it's the friends that we take walks with, or we have tea with, or we, you know, talk on the phone with, or we do maybe do a trip with, or something like this. The joys, we want to consistently laugh at each other's jokes and, um, you know, admire each other's pets and all the things we do with friends. Both of these aspects of friendliness, the compassion aspect of showing up in hard times and the contentment aspect of enjoying, having fun with, they both have the net effect of increasing our peace. And that's what I think Bodhagosa is pointing to when he said the characteristic of loving kindness is to promote well-being. So the cool thing is that we don't have to wait for these moments with our friends to experience that sense of friendliness. We can actually cultivate it. And that's quite amazing. Cultivate it so that that energy of friendliness underlies both compassion and fun. So contentment. One of the reasons that we want to lift up so we're lifting up friendliness first of all i wanted to make that point right at the outset and then we lift up compassion but not tonight <laughs> compassion's a whole nother topic and tonight we'll lift up this energy of contentment or other synonyms like i said joy um fun uh ease those kinds of qualities. One of the reasons that we want to deliberately lift this up and make sure that it's a regular part of our lives is because it refuels us. It actually replenishes us. Um, and I'll say more about, about you know, differentiating um, skillful joy fun and contentment from the kind of stuff we do to you know short-term strategies to numb out and to i'll say more about that in a few minutes but in general joy replenishes us if you think of 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 yourself as or you think about how cars need fuel you know you wouldn't just drive a car into the ground without ever refueling it well, joy is the same way. We need it. We need these moments of contentment and peace, fun and ease as a way to refill our tanks. Buddhist teacher Christina Feldman says that the remedy for compassion fatigue is not to push on with compassionate action when we're exhausted, but the antidote to, to compassion fatigue is joy. So we turn to joy to just give us energy. In a relatively new field of study called trauma-informed mindfulness, you may have heard of uh, David Trelevin's book, Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness, it's a fantastic book, and there's a lot more now happening to understand trauma and how mindfulness can be supportive, and sometimes mindfulness can be undermining if it's not offered with the understanding that when trauma is triggered or activated, that we need resourcing and the resourcing that we need when trauma is activated isn't to this turning just simply this turning toward um that mindfulness provides but it can actually be wise distraction it can actually be you know getting into nature or reading a good book or having a healthy meal or taking a hot shower and that that's actually the skillful way to um, re-regulate and get back into our bodies so that we can um, continue on with our practices and our journey. 
this is mostly on mindfulness retreats that this understanding is becoming more um, implemented, but it's helpful for us too in daily life to understand that these things that bring us joy and pleasure, these kind of simple moments of ease are essential for helping us stay grounded in that place of well-being that I was mentioning earlier. So contentment is an antidote to compassion fatigue, fills us up. It's resourcing for us when we're outside of our zone of tolerance. And further, contentment is something that we need um, in order to be there for other people. I was thinking today as I was preparing this talk about, you know, how we have an in-breath and an out-breath. Contentment, joy, fun, ease, peace. Ideally, those are like the in-breath. They nourish us. And then compassion is more like service. It's more like generosity. It's more like the out-breath. And I want to say that includes self-compassion because self-compassion takes effort. Self-compassion means we're turning toward our own pain, which takes willingness and courage. And then we're cultivating different strategies for, for helping ourselves feel better. And that takes work, which is great. It's beautiful, sacred work. But it's more like service. Even self-compassion is more like service. And then the contentment piece is the nourishment. And we need them both. We need the in-breath and we need the out-breath. So the, the point is that our joy, our contentment is never frivolous. It's our life fuel. We have a tendency in our culture. I know I have had a tendency um, with in in my own life to take in the cultural value of productivity and just have this sense that belonging in self-worth has been related to how much I can do in a day, more in the compassion end of things, more like producing, well, and surviving, of course, and and then the value that our culture ascribes to productivity. And having inherited that value and then also not, you know, enjoying contentment, of course, but not, not having ascribed it any value culturally, I would have days and weeks and months where contentment, joy, ease, peace, didn't make it onto my to-do list at all. And then I would burn out because I wasn't refueling. I wasn't replenishing. And so it's, it's helpful. It's helpful. It can be helpful to really understand that we need, we need it. Your joy is never frivolous. It's your life fuel. So having made that point, it's important to clarify, and I'll, I'll say more about this another time, but I, it's important to clarify that there are two kinds of fun. <laughs> There's the fun that we're talking about tonight, which is the type of fun that replenishes and fortifies you, that supports your thriving, and it supports others in thriving too. Even if all it is, is you, you know, you get a good night's sleep, which, you know, for many of us, it's like, wow, wouldn't that be amazing? And let's say that works out and you get a good night's sleep and that is the fun that night and it fortifies you and it allows yourself to thrive and it allows those around you to thrive too, because you're more grounded and present for them. Or it can be, you know, a camping trip, or it could be, it might be you know, anything that gives you joy when the effect is that it supports your well-being. That type of fun I call replenishing fun or 
contentment. There's another kind of fun, the fun that depletes and derails us and others. So there's replenishing fun and there's derailing fun. So replenishing fun or contentment, as I said, is rooted in friendliness and mindfulness and the practice of holding experience and friendliness and warmth and supports your flourishing. And it's an essential part of thriving. Derailing fun is rooted in craving, aversion to pain and delusion. And this is more commonly in Buddhism called greed, hatred, and delusion. Derailing fun is rooted in craving, aversion to pain, and delusion. So we can think about this. I mean, this is human. It, it all sounds, you know, the language, especially where it's like, you know, greed and hatred and delusion and craving and those kinds of words, they make it all seem like, oh, yikes, so horrible. And they are, they, they do, they hurt. They're not fun. And they're a normal part of the human mind and psyche. No, just to normalize it. It's just, we all have these and they're normal and, and we work with them um, and it helps to recognize them. So we can think of craving as the way we turn to addictions. And we also can understand this as a way we try to numb pain. And it, it, it's very understandable and very poignant. But addictions, they're, you know, the way the brain works, the, the, there's, a, there's a very specific word, and this isn't it, but I'm just tr trying to remember the word, but it's something like, super duper substances and behaviors, substances and behaviors that are, that give us such big dopamine hits. You know, we still have the kind of brains that we had 50,000 years ago, but we've got substances and behaviors now that have such huge dopamine hits that they activate very intense addictions and cravings. And also, um, they are short, they can be short-term strategies for numbing our pain for sure. And I, and you know, I'm not only talking about like heroin addiction, but I'm talking about the kinds of things many of us turn to. And we know it's not serving our well-being, but we're we've got that kind of craving thing going on, and we've got this way in which it could gives us a break from the stress of this, you know, late capitalism lifestyle that we're in. So we do it. So there's the craving. There can be an urgent need to escape a gaping sense of distress that we carry in this world, in this life. And if we don't have um, a, a really good palette of, of compassionate, self-compassionate response, it makes sense that we would use these derailing fun strategies. So they're understandable, but they're not replenishing to us long-term. In fact, they're destructive and they're not coming from friendliness, real genuine friendliness, like a really good, wise friend wouldn't be um, you know, urging us to smoke that next cigarette. A good wise friend would, in that case, you know, when we're dealing with craving and pain, we're in a whole different league than contentment and fun and joy. We're actually in the league of compassion. What's needed when we have strategies of what I'm calling derailing fun is a significant infusion of self-compassion strategies. And again, I'm not talking about that tonight, but if that is something that your little internal bookmark is going, hmm, really? How do I develop self-compassion strategies? I want to highly recommend um, the work of Kristen Neff, Mindful Self-Compassion. She has two books and an amazing website and TED Talks. 
Her website is selfcompassion.org. We can cultivate self-compassion strategies that help us to meet our pain and um, thwart our cravings so that we're not turning to self-derailing fun as um, as a as a mechanism for making it through this life quite as much. And instead, we're cultivating these beautiful, what the Buddha would have called wholesome qualities rooted in, in friendliness and mindfulness, genuine compassion, and genuine, uplifting, sustaining joy and contentment. Replenishing fun, rooted in friendliness, like how we are with our friends. In genuine, wise friendliness, we want what's best for our friends and for ourselves. And rather than depleting us, replenishing fun refuels us. So that brings me to my next point, which is that in order to cultivate this contentment, or replenishing fun, we need to be aware of our negativity bias. Every human brain has one. We, we evolved with it. Um, and when mindfulness is on board, we can bypass it. But when we're operating out of, uh, you know, automatic pilot, we have this um, negativities negativity bias that drive can often drive our habits so all of us and all not only us but all the other animals too we tend to sense and dwell on negative stimuli and we evolved this way in order to stay as free of danger as possible and i'll say more about this in a minute but you can think about a lot of positive stimuli like say you get to go on a like a tropical vacation and you're in this really beautiful beachside condo and there's spaciousness and sun coming in and pretty furniture and yummy food and then you go into the bathroom and there's a big spider on the wall so the tendency of the human mind is to have that all that positive stimuli and the spider stands up. It's the spider that you will remember, you'll store it, you'll talk about it. My friend Britt Winkleman shared this story with me. It's a great example of, of negativity bias mind, all this good stuff. And there is that spider. And that's what we really put immediately into long-term memory. And we talk about it too, because our ancestors needed to spread information about danger to communicate danger to the you know to the group so that everybody could stay as safe as possible so in today's world as we're well aware negative things travel farther and faster than positive things do so there can be all this possibility of taking in and savoring joy and contentment and the negativity bias will hijack us if we're running from habit energy, if we're running on automatic pilot. So we want to use our mindfulness to decondition this bias. There are several practices that we can do. Um, the one I want to work with tonight is the practice of savoring. Think about, you know, the Buddha taught there are joys and sorrows. So not to deny the sorrows, but to spend some time thinking about the joys, understanding that they refuel us and they replenish us. Um, This is the, there's different ways to get, understand this, but I want to start with the type of joy that comes in through the, the five senses. 
So how the, the loveliness of the warm sun on your face, the sense of touch when it's pleasant. Oh, the taste of a piece of fruit. The sight of a beautiful tree. Or the fragrance of some flowers on your neighborhood street. The taste, I always mentioned taste, oh, the sound of a beautiful piece of music. We can deliberately notice these things when they're arising. We need to deliberately notice them because otherwise, as I said, the negativity bias will kind of have us really focusing on um, and thinking about and talking about the one thing that wasn't good or the several things that weren't good or aren't good. And it's not that we want to be in denial. It's more that we want to bring in and add to our long-term memory these beautiful things that come in through our senses all the time. When we are savoring something, we let it sink in, let it land, and then let it go because it's impermanent. The life is a sine wave. <laughs> Good things, hard things, neutral things, they all come and go much more on their own time than on our agenda. And one of the central Buddhist teachings is that if we try to just string beads of pleasant sensory experience one after another and never hit the hard times, we'll be sorely disappointed because we can't control that. Everything is impermanent and the arising and falling of pleasant, unpleasant and neutral happens to all of us. So it isn't, it, it, it really are our well-being isn't ultimately about having lots and lots of these moments to savor over and over and over again. It's about how learning how to travel the territory. So when pleasant is arising, we can savor it, let it nourish us, and then let it go. And then whatever arises next, be there for that. If what arises at some point will be what arises is something difficult, stressful, hard. Then we learn to travel that path too. We receive it. We hold it with compassion. And when it's time for it to go, we let it go. And it can seem like, you know, because of, you know, hard things can are so there, they can be so overwhelming it can seem like, and for many of us, there are chronic challenges. I'm not saying that's not the case. Even in the midst of chronic physical challenge, very deep grief, the, the, the hard things of life, we can still take in and savor these moments of the pleasant things arising, allowing them to come and go, responding with um, presence. the teaching that we can it's not our our well-being isn't about gathering up all the pleasant stuff it's about learning to savor the good things and hold the hard things in compassion and and more about how we travel and less about trying to control reality that teaching is a, a movement in the direction of the buddha's deeper teaching on happiness which is that we can have deep peace in the midst of things as they are, no matter how they are. And that that's related to this capacity to receive, respond skillfully, and let go, all of those aspects. There's a wonderful writer named Deb Dana who interprets um, the polyvagal theory in several books. I am reading a wonderful book, which I recommend if you're interested in regulating nervous system, 
regulating the nervous system called anchoring. And Deb Dana um, invented a term called glimmers, which you may have heard of. I, I'd actually seen that term glimmers on social media not attributed to anybody, but it, it's from Deb Dana. And it's the positive um, opposite of triggers. So triggers are when something, you know, activates us, something brings up pain for us. Glimmers are those little moments in a day that when we're present for them can open our hearts. And, and they can happen in, in any time, even just like the smell of the sidewalk after the rain or, you know, the, the smile, the smile of a passing dog. And what I want to suggest that we all practice this week, and I'll be back next week, and I, I can even ask you next week how this goes for you if you're here, um, is to practice looking for glimmers. Because of our negativity bias, it's not going to necessarily arise. We, we get preoccupied. So we have to be on the lookout for them. Practice looking for glimmers. There's a saying, where attention goes, energy flows. And as we let these glimmers in through the five senses, you know, the crunch of the gravel underneath your feet to the smell outside in your yard, letting them in, our contentment builds and begins to nourish us. And this is a somatic thing. This is the five senses. This is a quote from author and social scientist Resma Menachem. He says, the body, not the thinking brain, is where we experience most of our pain, pleasure, and joy, and where we process most of what happens to us. It is also where we do most of our healing, including our emotional and psychological healing. And it's where we experience resilience and a sense of flow. So coming into our bodies through the five senses and looking for glimmers and savoring them. So I want to close, we'll, we'll have time for some questions and answers if you have any, or just I'd love to hear how this is all landing for you. But before we do that, I want to lead us in a very brief exercise from Rick Hansen. Um, and it, he calls it HEAL, H-E-A-L, an acronym, a four-step technique for processing positive experiences. So I'm just going to read you a little bit of his words and then lead you in the practice, he says. So speaking of the negativity bias, so how do you incline your brain toward happiness when it's like Velcro for negative experience and Teflon for good ones. Fortunately, there are some simple practices you can use that help counteract the negativity bias. At the core, getting skillful with taking in the good involves training attention to stay with positive experiences. That's what we're doing when we're looking for glimmers. We already know that our brains adapt to the experiences we have and the kinds of experiences we have depend on what we pay attention to. In that sense, attention is the gatekeeper of experience. The challenge is that the brain's negativity bias automatically makes negative events more salient to attention. To capitalize on self-directed neuroplasticity, you have to deliberately tune in to positive experiences. In other words, you have to be fully present with positive experiences long enough for the brain to metabolize and integrate them. And you have to repeat this often enough to offset the weight of negative experiences. 
While this may sound daunting or complicated, it really isn't. You already know how to do this, and there are countless opportunities to appreciate good things in every moment. Making it a regular practice can really give you traction with developing the skill. This is one practice, the practice of HEAL, H-E-A-L. So H stands for have a positive experience. E stands for enrich it. A stands for absorb it. And step four, which is optional, stands for link to a positive, link to positive and negative material. So I'll just walk us through this. The, the staying with and savoring the glimmers is, involves the first three steps. And if you want to like kind of hook the positive experience in so that you're simultaneously aware, I'm smelling the fresh air and there's a pain in my shoulder so that you're not, so that you're learning not to be hyper-focused on the negative. Then that's that last step, the L of linking it, linking the positive and negative. Okay. The first step involves bringing a positive experience into awareness. This can be done simply by noticing pleasant sensations in your external environment right now. So you might be sitting in a quiet room and that might be pleasant, or there might be some pretty, you know, art <laughs> on the other side of your computer screen, or you might enjoy seeing the Sangha and community here something in the external environment right now. You can also turn into tune into positive internal cues. So feeling some clarity or ease internally right now. Some sense of interest or curiosity. So present moment external experience, present moment internal experience, and then the third is call to mind experiences that are not part of this moment, like something that worked out well last week or something for which you're grateful. So take a moment and invoke one of these right now with me. Let's do this together. Find something either outside yourself, inside yourself, or something in your life in general or memory or something that you're grateful for. All right, so the step two, enrich it. Step one was H, have a positive experience. So that's what we just did. And then step two is enrich it. So stay with the experience for at least five seconds or really even longer. Like see if it's possible to, to deliberately stay with it right now. Opening up to body sensations, associated thoughts. Maybe also think about what's helpful or nourishing or even possibly new or exciting about this thing something helpful or nourishing. New or exciting. So that's the E of enriching it. And then step three, absorb it. This is a little bit more savoring here. Allow the experience to really sink in. Set the intention to make it feel part of you. You can visualize the elements of the experience coming together in your heart or consolidating in the neural networks of your brain. 
Note that this state of mind is accessible to you at any moment and that the experience is a resource that you can call upon when needed some other time. And then the final optional step, the L and heal, link to positive and negative material. Once you have a strong, stable sense of the positive experience in the foreground, you might also notice related negative content in the background. Try bringing these two experiences together, seeing if the current positive disarms negative one a little. As I attend to the peacefulness in my environment right now, I can still pick up a trace of frustration and patience from earlier in the day, making room for both experiences. I can feel the current peacefulness resolve the tension from earlier. If you find the negative is doing its thing and hijacking your practice and launching a rumination, just let go of the negative and refocus on the positive. So um, that's the practice. You know what I realized? You might want to have it. I am going to copy it right now. I, I copied this practice from an article and I'm gonna just copy it for you and put it in the chat so that if you wanna copy it out of the chat and take it away with you, you can. Okay, the link is numinous, N as in Nancy, U as in Ulysses, M as in Mary, I as in Igloo, N as in Nancy, U as in Ulysses, S as in Sam, dot com, forward slash, E-N dash U-S, forward slash, learn, forward slash, blog, forward slash, the number four, dash, steps, dash, the word for, F-O-R, dash taking dash in dash the dash good forward slash thanks so much for the talk eve and i really appreciate the heal i think it's a, a more wonderful practice when i was thinking about the l part where we're linking the negative experience with or the positive experience with something negative it also occurred to me that it holds true for the opposite. If I'm having a negative experience, I can also maybe link it with something positive and see that, oh, it's not so negative all the time. So yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Another practice that I couldn't get to tonight. So I'm going to continue. I'll be back next week and I'm going to continue with the contentment theme. Another um, practice that's really helpful and can be really, really resourcing when something painful is arising is gratitude. So like something, something challenging is going on and, you know, mind is really focused on it. If I can remember to think of five or 10 things that I'm grateful for, and there's a lot of research about this too, it immediately span, expands the field, just like you're saying. So, but we're starting, instead of starting with the positive and bringing in the negative, we're starting with the negative and bringing in the positive. And either way, it's nourishing. Yeah, thank you. Oh, somebody's asking, how do I save chat? Well, I think there are different ways to do it. What I do is just, you know, um, use my cursor to highlight the whole thing press command C so it's copy and then open a word document and put it in there. It's, I hope that's helpful. Jim. Oh, you're just saying, yes, that's how you do that too. 
Oh, you are muted. No, I, I, I just was agreeing what you were saying there. That's what I was saying. Yeah, oh, I see. Thank that's you. That's a good idea to uh, to save that. No, no, I'm, I'm feeling content today, despite some of these other things going on. But uh, no, just to, just to be there, you know, well, so you're talking about attention. And it's really helpful, I uh, you know, with aphasia uh, to be really focused uh, rather than overthinking, which is, you mm -hmm. know, Asia thing, you know, oh my God, there's this, 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 okay, nothing's going to happen right now. You know, look at the rain, listen to the music, uh, talk to somebody, just be in the present and, you know, can always doing meditation, uh, helps a lot to just kind of be there where you're kind of above all that, uh, thunder and rain, and you're just kind of at that place about that. Yeah. So it, it, it's been helping during the week with some other things that have been kind of uh, worrying, but just kind of being, just being there, being there in the present. And yeah. That's beautiful. Contentment. That's contentment. Being there. That's in the right. Present. Yeah. Yeah. So often the present moment is more manageable than what the mind is doing. Yeah, thank you for that wisdom. I really appreciate it. Okay, so cultivating contentment um, to be continued next week. Uh, thank you for being here tonight. We'll dedicate the merit. So merit is the good energy that we generated over the evening together and dedicating is our generosity, which is a beautiful practice of, of giving. So may the merit of our time together tonight be for the benefit of all beings everywhere, including ourselves. May all beings everywhere know, be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. May all beings everywhere know peace and the causes of peace. Thanks everybody. Wishing you a really good night and week.